Hey there, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name's Tim. And this is Chris. This is Adam. And this is Steve. And today we're going to give our hot take review on the game we just finished playing, Barrage. But before we do, you know that if Steve is on with the rest of us, that there's a lot to say about this game. So let's jump in to a poll before we get into the discussion about Barrage. I asked this week on Twitter, as I always do, hey, if you're new to the show, follow us on Twitter at BG underscore hot takes. Every week I ask a poll question and I would love for you to contribute and add to the percentages on here, but also leave some comments because we always read some comments as well. The poll question I asked this week, does game setup time impact your love of a board game? The three options I gave, number one, yes, I hate long setup. Number two is no, I enjoy setting up. And number three, depends on length of game. How do you guys answer this? As usual, not one of the options, but my answer was that it doesn't affect my love of the game, but it does affect the number of times I'm willing to play it. Because there's lots of games that I really enjoy, but I just don't have the time to you know sit down for a half an hour and get things all broke down and set up. And actually, a perfect example that's on my table right now is Tainted Grail. That is a crazy setup game. And I am so afraid to take it down. I've been like playing games all over the house and other tables because I don't want to take Tainted Grail down. It's going to take me too long to set it back up again, and it'll be six months before I play it again. So yeah, so it, it, it doesn't affect how much I like a game, but it does affect how much I'll play it. Yeah, Chris, I'll add on to that. I'll say I think the environment affects it a little too. If you do have a dedicated gaming table that's away from everything, you can sort of put a game out there and spend you know three hours setting it up and just leave it set up for the whole year and go back to it and play it whenever you want. And then you don't have to worry about tear down, set it up, tear down, set it up. In my situation, I don't have much space. So I'm all trying to find these games that take three minutes to set up and have this deep thought and strategy. I can play them and pack them up before the baby comes in and starts swallowing little pieces and throwing spaceships all around the room and hiding things. So I think a lot depends on the environment that you have. In general, a game like Empires of the Void 2 is a perfect example for me. I loved that game. Well, I mediocred that game, but the setup time was like 30 to 45 minutes, and then you had to tear it down, you had to deal this deck here and put this deck there. It detracted from the experience for me. So yeah, a game setup time can hurt the, the gameplay experience in the game itself for me. Well, I'm going to use Wonderland's War as an example. It's a, it's a favorite here for sure, and it doesn't affect how much I like the game, but it does affect when I can play the game. Uh, If I know I have somebody coming over to the house, I will set it up ahead of time. Uh, If we're meeting at a bar or we're planning on playing more than one game, the setup and teardown time of that game, especially without the Kickstarter uh, add-ons, is just too long. Uh, Especially if nobody else knows how to set it up and tear it down with me. You know, I have to do it myself. There's just going to be too much downtime. Um, I love the game, and if I get the chance to set it up ahead of time, I will do that, but I don't take it to random game meetups because it just takes too long. The way I answered, I said depends on the length of the game because I think there's a lot to be said about, you know, I I don't mind spending some time setting up a game if I get a big experience, a big epic experience out of it. But I do mind if the game setup takes as long as the game at play itself. You know, if it's a long setup and then you just get this short little experience out of it, that's really frustrating to me. But in reality, I think... I think I have to say that the game setup does impact my love of a board game sometimes. Steve mentioned Wonderland's War. That's a great example. That's a game that I have a lot of fun playing, but I've been not super excited about getting on the table because every time it takes a long time to set up and stuff uh, and put away. 
or Leon is a great example. This is a game that I've had for five or six years now. I always have fun when I play the game, but I'm very hesitant to get it out and play it. And so I think it does in some ways impact my love of the game, even though, you know, the game itself may be great. And I'm going to know that once I'm actually playing it. But it's not just about can I set it up? It's like, do I really want to go through all this mental effort of putting all these chits out and shuffling all this stuff and, and doing all this stuff? So I think there's a combination. But that being said, you know, there are some games that have a long setup that I still really love. Wonderland's War, only one I just mentioned. But it, I think it does detract a little bit. And I think I really appreciate a game that is streamlined down enough where I can get it set up quickly, especially as a solo player. You know, like as a solo player, like if I want to sit down and play a game for a couple hours, I don't want half that time to be spent in setup. So Chris, I totally agree with you. I asked a terrible poll question here, gave the wrong options as I always do. And uh, I should have given some other options because this none of these exactly fit my, my taste either. Here's what people responded. 26% said, yes, I hate long setup. 21% said, no, I enjoy setting up. And 53% said, depends on length of the game. So yeah, interesting. A couple responses I wanted to mention here that I think give us a nice range. So David Rodriguez at All Games New and Old said, if a long game has a long setup, I'm not too bothered. But if the setup time starts to approach the play time, it's too long. I may still love a game with a long setup, but might pick other games to play over it so I don't have to deal with it. Yep, I agree with that. Ryle Nerd, this is Riley Stock, he had my favorite analogy of the night. He said, it definitely affects how often I get some games to the table, but I wouldn't say it has any impact on my love of the game. It's like if I wanted to drive to a city, but it's like a two-hour drive. It doesn't make me like the city any less. I just can't go as often as I'd like to. That's such a perfect analogy to this situation. Really agree with that. And then the last one I want to read is Never Say Die. This is our friend Chris. He said, voted yes, I like the setup. It doesn't impact how much I like, love a game, but it definitely impacts how frequently I play it. I love getting into all the pieces and immersing myself into the game, but the time involved is a luxury I often cannot afford. But then he responded to it. He took a little time to reflect, and then he responded again. He said, I'd like to add to this. After a little more thought, I'm pretty sure that if I was able to play as frequently as I would like, the romance of setting the game up would lose its appeal, and I would just want to get to the game. So it's funny, like, yeah, the time you have available detracts, the setup time can detract from that, but also the less frequently you get to play a game, the more fun it is to just be, you know, getting this stuff out. But when you can play a lot, like, let's just get to the game. Our uh, BGHT con, I think, cons are a great example of this, right? We want to get as many games as we can in over the weekend. And so it's so frustrating when a game's taking a long time to set up because let's just get into it. Let's just, like, move to the next game so we can knock that out. So anyway, yeah, setup time. Hey, hey uh, publishers, let's fix this. Let's, let's speed this up a little bit. All right, and with that, let's jump into a description of Barrage. In Barrage, one to four players are energy barons in an alternate 1920s where dams are built by giant construction mechs and hydroelectric powers king. Each player will struggle to build critical infrastructure in the unforgiving environment of the European Alps to harness the power of mountains, rivers, and hopefully steal glory, fortune, and lucrative contracts out from under their rivals. Barrage takes place over a series of five rounds, with each round an opportunity for players to use their available workers to build the energy empire. This all plays out on a board that represents that most basic of physics lessons, the downhill flow of water. At the top, we get the mountains. This changes to hills, and then at the bottom of the board, you have the plains. And along the way, there's a series of interconnected lakes and rivers bordered by building areas where players can construct powerhouses, dams, and conduits. 
The basic means of scoring points in the game is the production of energy by connecting dams and powerhouses by way of these conduits, and then moving water through this apparatus to generate energy that can be used to fulfill contracts. But this can be tougher than it sounds, because your opponents are competing for the same building slots. And if you're not careful, you may find them diverting your water for their benefit. So over the course of five rounds, players will take turns placing workers either on their player board to construct buildings or on a common market board that gives players access to a number of other actions. To construct buildings, players will have to use a combination of workers and construction resources, mechs that function as either excavators or cement mixers. In a clever twist, once a player commits their construction equipment, the building becomes usable immediately, but the mechs are taken out of action through placement on a construction wheel. Those machines will only become available again when the wheel is spun 360 degrees. This essentially simulates the commitment of construction resources to the project until it's completed. Each building requires different equipment types, so players will also need to make sure they're allocating their construction capacity appropriately. So besides construction, players have several other actions they can take on the shared board. At the water management station, players can manipulate water to stage it for later production. At the bank, players can use workers to generate cash. At the workshop, players can rotate their construction wheel in order to return their construction mechs more quickly. At the machinery shop, players can build new construction equipment. At the contract office, players can secure contracts that they'll attempt to fill later as they produce energy. And finally, and most importantly, at the turbine station, players can move trapped water through their powerhouses to generate precious electricity. And when doing this, they also have the opportunity to fulfill contracts based on the amount of energy they produced. This will generate some combination of points and various other benefits. After the five rounds, points will be tallied and the player with the most points will be the winner. Barrage was designed by Tommaso Battista and Simone Luciani and is published by Cranio Creations. All right, thanks for that description, Chris. Let's get into the gameplay and mechanisms of Barrage. The thing I want to talk about first is one of the things that I found most interesting about this game. So first of all, let me just pause to say that there is such an incredibly tight economy in this game that it is a constant frustration. It's a fun frustration, but it's still a frustration. And one of the things where I think it's tightest is in terms of your construction equipment, your mechs that are either excavators or cement mixers. Once you take them out of action to build something, they're out of action for a while. You put them on this wheel and there's, I think, five or six times the wheel has to rotate before it finally gets back to, around to the point where you can use those mechs. And holy cow, it's like an eternity. I hate waiting for that. You're sitting there going, man, I just need one more conduit. I just need one more mech. But you gotta wait and wait, or you have to spend way too much of your resources to build more mechs. Or you have to spend way too much of your resources to move that construction wheel around. So at the same time, it was a super interesting and demanding aspect of the game that I think really, really adds to the, uh, to the complexity here and the fun. So yeah, you're Chris, you're talking about the tight economy and a lot of those actions relating to that tight economy. And that's what stood out to me was kind of the coolness of these actions. And you have, I don't know, five or six different actions and one of them is distribute water at the start of the head stream and it can be delayed flow or immediate flow and you have the big the fun one is produce this energy and maybe that'll activate some of these contracts that's one of the other actions is get a contract and it all ties in right it's this whole you're gonna 
manage your workers, you're going to manage your money, your resources, your mechs that go around this wheel. I thought the actions were cool. Yeah, it's worker placement, but it's more of like an action selection. How many resources are you going to dedicate to this uh, action at this time? Do you want to do it now or do you want to wait till later when it might possibly be more expensive? I just thought the whole worker placement action selection part of this game just stood out and was just fantastic to me. There's so many interesting mechanisms to talk about, but what I want to talk about first is the separation between the common worker placement spaces and the private worker placement spaces. And I'm also going to talk at the same time because I just can't talk about one thing. There's so many things here. I want to talk about that wheel because that wheel is brutal. It reminds me a lot of uh, Zulkin, but nobody else can mess with your wheel, which I love about it. That's the only thing that nobody else can mess with in this. Um, and that's that's actually part of the interesting uh, contrast between the common uh, worker placement spaces and the private worker placement spaces. The common worker placement spaces, yes. Everyone is competing for those spaces, but those spaces are not building spaces. So you can get the most efficient production spot, right? Costs you a little bit less or you get a little more energy. But the private worker spaces are the building spaces. And those are the spaces where nobody else is going to compete for your worker placement, but there are limited building spots on the board. And so you still have to prioritize whether you're going to take a spot on the common worker placement board to get the cheaper cost or slightly bigger benefit versus building on your personal board and taking a building spot that will be blocked essentially for the rest of the game in most cases. Now, in conjunction with that, I want to talk about that wheel some more because I just can't stop thinking about it. That wheel is so interesting. In this playthrough, I built some very expensive buildings at the beginning of the game. And those tied up my resources a lot. Not only does it take a lot of your resources, but the only cost-effective way to move that wheel is to build additional buildings. And once you've spent all of your mechs, you can't build any more buildings and your wheel doesn't move until you've either increased your income high enough to move it during the income phase or you spend your resources to move the wheel. And I just think it's such an interesting puzzle. So first, we were supposed to play this game several months back and I, I read the rule book and watched a rules video on it. And I texted the team here and I said, guys, there's no way we're going to play this game. It looks so, so dull. It's like the, it's just worker placement. It's, it's not even an interesting version of worker placement. I just want to mention that I was so wrong on that. The worker placement here is very tight and very interesting and, and very combative. I think this is where worker placement works really well is when this, the spots are so important and every spot you take means you're giving up another spot. And this is a great example of it. So I was wrong there. But I want to mention what Steve mentioned about the wheel. And the wheel is really interesting. And I did the same thing. You know, you spent, you built an early building that was expensive. And then you put all your concrete mixers or excavators there or whatever. 
And then you didn't have them for five more turns, you know, for several more rounds, you had to spend a lot of stuff to move it around, whatever. The point is that this is probably one of the most punishing first plays of a game I've ever experienced. And that it's a very interesting game. I have a lot of good stuff to say about it, but I have to mention that it is also a rough first play. There's so many things that can go wrong here that you just don't even realize until you've actually experienced it. And it's the wheel is one of those things. The, the placement of your components out on the board, your dams and your power stations and your, all of those things, the way that other people can mess with your water flow and your production, it can be so frustrating on a first play. I'll just leave it there. Well, I don't want to leave it there. I want to keep talking about this. I don't want to leave it there either. Let's not leave it there. <laughs> this is kind of the story of the night. And it really does come down. I mean, we can talk about all the different types of actions you can take and all that. But in reality, I think the real story is the tightness of the economy. It's the tightness of the worker placement spaces. I mean, it got to the point at the end of the game where it was so brutal that one difference in a worker placement space could have you know, changed the game in one direction or another. In this one, Adam and I ended up tying and then he won on the tiebreaker. And what it came down to in the last round, we both were set up in a couple different places where we were able to generate electricity because we had water stored up. And he did things a certain way. He was a little bit more efficient. And he ended up getting the, the worker placement spaces. Well, actually, the three of you ended up using those to the point where when I finally had the chance to go in there and do my big, you know, my big um, uh, production action, there was only one space left. And it was the one that gave you a one-point reduction on your energy production. It was one point away from being able to fulfill a contract, which would have given me eight more points and a bunch of other stuff, too. That's the kind of stuff that's going on in this game. And what's, what's funny is, you know, Tim mentioned that we had talked about this one a while back. The thing I remember you saying, Tim, was not that it sounded dull, but that it sounded mean. That it's going to be one of these games where everybody's just getting up in everybody's face. And I was wondering, because, I mean, it is absolutely that kind of a game. And I will mention, we were as salty on a game night as we have ever been playing this game tonight. There, was, there, was a, there, were, there were words had. I mean, it was <laughs> a couple times. And not, not like bad. I mean, you know, we're all, you know, we're all in this for the fun. But people were getting pretty intense about it. And I think that is kind of par for the course with this game is it does, it gets hackles up. There's no doubt about that. Chris is laughing about this because he was the meanest of us all tonight. But um, I will say that, yes, I thought it was going to be mean and not fun. It was very mean, but it was, it's a very fun game. So I got half of that right. One man's mean is another man's fun, strategic interaction. And I that's what I thought this game was a master's level design in you had ways to harness this water and hold it and then shoot it through your conduits and make all this energy and then you could put a dam upstream and capture that water before it could go to the next person and you could divert it over here do this with that the whole control of the water and how that forced the interaction on the other players in the game i thought was absolutely the star of the show for me you have these conduits that can take water from the, the left stream and shoot it over to the right stream. You can take it from down to this, from this little pond and put it up in this little powerhouse and shoot it out in this little pond. You gotta really keep your eye on where the water's gonna go and how to manage that to make it work to your advantage. And that was such a fun puzzle and something to be aware of as you're playing this game. And yeah, that's a lot of interaction came from this. There was, you'd had to be aware of someone could block you out. And then how are you going to prevent that from 
hosing you over the next few rounds. I loved it. I loved that puzzle. The interaction was outstanding for me. Yeah, I think that one of the interesting things about what you just talked about was that you do have to keep your eye on the ball, but early in the game, at least, you do have alternative routes you can go. If somebody does try to block you, they give you enough building spaces. It's going to cost you more, might cost you an action, but you can still change the course of the water. You can still change the course of the game. The other thing that we haven't talked about very much yet are the contracts. Um, And I want to talk about two things here. I'll just mention the government contracts first because we never executed a single government contract. They are super powerful, super expensive, and I think it's indicative of the fact that we don't really know how to play this game yet, that we could not execute a single government contract. But also, the variety of the private contracts is significant. You need to pick the private contracts that are going to benefit your strategy, and you have to think six turns ahead, not only about where you're building and how much your workers are going to cost, but how do you execute those contracts in the correct sequence so that you can utilize the benefits effectively and not have to spend resources or wait until the next round so that you can take your next action. A lot of stuff going on. Super interesting. I loved it. So I just love the bonuses in this game. Like, you know, it's not like everything you do gets a bonus, but there are the right moments where, you know, you do some production and you'll get a bonus. You, you know, when you fulfill one of the contracts, like Steve was mentioning, or when you build a building, you get a bonus, but it's also a recurring bonus that happens during income. Those bonuses are so much fun. They give you so many varied abilities. And because it's asymmetric player boards, the bonuses you get for building buildings are different. And so that's going to be a different puzzle every game. Like it's not always the right thing to rush to one bonus by building a certain number of buildings. It's going to depend on which player board you're playing on. So really like that. I love bonuses. Yeah, I really like those bonuses too. And I think it's because they are sprinkled around the board in a way that makes them super strategic in how you apply them. There were things, especially at the end of the game, where you just needed a last little bump in, you know, an extra drop of water or an extra point or an extra couple of energy production and it may be a bonus that gives you that so for at the end of the game I was building buildings that I didn't even need I didn't need them for the building but building that building would also unlock for me a bonus that I really needed to accomplish one thing or another and that actually brings me to another point that it reminds me a lot this game of other games that are designed by some of these same design team members Simone Luciani who is one of my favorite designers, is also uh, one of the lead designers on Sulkin, which is also one of my favorite games. And there's a lot of common DNA between these two. Not so much in the actual gameplay. I mean, I don't. they don't feel the same to me in that sense. They're very different thematically, obviously. But one thing where these two games do have a lot in common is that they're both built around this idea of all these interlocking requirements that need to happen in order to do something. You need to have a worker placement space to do something, but you also need the money to pay for that thing. And you also need the workers and you need to have the mechs to do whatever it is you need to do. So there's all these things that you have to get lined up. So when you're ready for that big turn, you got all those things ready to go, which is very similar to Sulkin, where you have that same kind of dynamic. 
And for me, it's both exciting and incredibly frustrating trying to get it lined up just right because it seems like so often I have this huge plan and I got this big turn all ready to go. And I'm like, oh, crap, I'm one dollar short or oh, crap, I needed two drops of water there to fulfill this contract instead of one. The same way in Sulkin, I find myself going, oh, crap, I'm missing one stone or I I was supposed to have another corn or I'm going to lose 20 points when I have to pay my workers or, or I have to feed my workers. And that is, I mean, I think it's, it's a testament to what a good puzzle this game is. It's frustrating as hell some of the times, but it's also, I think it's going to give this game a lot of replayability. Chris, you make a great point when you compare it to Sulkin from that perspective. Yeah, you got to have your workers, you got to have your resources, you got to have your workers in the right spot at the right time to do this big old action that you're trying to do. I think that's a great analogy for what we're doing here in Barrage. And yeah, the bonuses, they're not all over the place. You're not getting them necessarily all the time. You got to you kind of have to work to get them and you pull up, "Oh, okay, once I get to this building over here, that's going to unlock this. That'll slide me forward on the production track and I'll get a little extra thing here." So yeah, you have to time it right and really work. Like both you, Chris, and Tim were saying how those uh, those bonuses are the, the right spot, the right time, and it's not too many of them. It's not too few of them. It feels just about right. It's not like all these combos that you might miss. Uh, so yeah, great points, you guys. I want to talk a little bit more about the asymmetry of this game. I think it's interesting how they did it. The mechanics, first of all, the mechanics are consistent across all the players, right? Unlike some of the games that have asymmetry, there is no asymmetry in the mechanics, but there is some asymmetry in costs, and there are two sets of unique bonuses for each player. One is your faction bonus, and the other one is your CEO bonus. Uh, We played the intro version tonight, which gives you a paired CEO for faction, Uh, Probably intended to work together, Um, but in the advanced rules, the CEO pairing is randomized, so that will be interesting uh, in some replayability. But they are significant. You do need to leverage your bonuses, your, your asymmetry, to maximize your effectiveness and your points. But I liked how there was those opportunities, but I didn't feel like you had to learn a whole new set of rules for each faction that you were playing against or for each new faction that you played. Yeah, this is a really good amount of asymmetry for me as well. I I like that. I like the decision of drafting the country and the leader at the beginning of the round when you're playing the advanced game. I think that's a really great decision point, but some fun differences between them. Uh, one last thing that I'm going to talk about mechanically here, and that has to do with the basically the power track and the idea that every round, when you can generate power by having water run through your processors, I forget what they're called, and then down to your power stations, then you get to move up this power track. Now, power track is not points, but it can convert to points based on how high you get there. But also, as you move up in each round, there's a kind of a different goal. It's kind of like Gaia Project, where you have a different goal every round for what you're trying to do the best of in that round. And so it's this really tough puzzle of like, you got to move your power up high enough to get within the realm of that particular goal, or at least to it or above it. Then you can get the points for that goal, but you also don't get negative points if you don't get that high. And it gets harder and harder over the course of the game. That was a really fun challenge to me. It's going to change a little bit every round about what's the most important components to build early on to meet those goals. 
But uh, it was interesting. It was frustrating a little bit to, you know, to build up all this power and then lose it all and, and have to start all over at the beginning of the next round and have to build it up. And I think every one of us had at least one round where we didn't get past the first region. I had several rounds like that. But you're going to have some rounds that just don't work well for you. And you got to take the hit on it and then hope that you're set up for the next round to go. So but but fun puzzle. And, you know, it's going to add some variability. It's going to change it up every game. I'll piggyback on that, Tim. I thought that track was fantastic. It's a very apt comparison to Guy Project, how each round you have a different goal that you're going to go for, that you're going to be going for. Are you going to be able to make that goal? Can you tie that into the goal for the next round or the next round after that? Also, that power track, how high you get on that determines turn order for the next round, which I thought was cool. So if you are lagging behind, you know you're going to be in last place. Well, you can kind of set yourself up. You can drip, drop some water down these head streams and get it to where your dam's going to be so you can have a huge explosive production round on the first turn of the next round. So you might be looking ahead. It gives you a chance to set yourself up. I think that's great. Power Track does a lot of things here. Uh, so I enjoy that very much. All right, well, let's jump over to the production and theme of Barrage. You know, two quick points for me. Number one is that the main board with the water dripping down all these different dams and stuff like that, super thematic. Everything makes perfect sense when you're building these power stations and dams and where water is going to run. And then you got the worker placement, one of the driest versions of worker placement I've ever seen. You know, the whole idea of worker placement is that it's an action selection mechanism but it's usually represented in a way where you're like sending people out to do a task. And so there might be a board that represents these places you're going to. In this one, it's this dry board on the side that you know has some terms, it has some names on it, but you're just dropping a bunch of workers in a spot and blocking them out. The driest representation of worker placement, so that was a miss for me. But the main board in Barrage really you know, knocks it out of the park is feeling. This is one of the probably most thematic Euro games in the way that what you're doing impacts the story of the game uh, that I've ever played. So, Tim, the contract office and the workshop aren't interesting enough locations to send your workers? I mean, come on, man. <laughs> I don't know. You thought it was dry. I thought it was efficient and effective. It's laid out so nice and easy. You can see exactly what's going to happen, how many spaces are left, how expensive they're going to get as the round goes on. Boring is not the right word for me at all. I thought it was just perfectly laid out easy to see what's going on and again another instance where tim's just not getting it on this game i didn't i didn't say boring i said dry that's completely different terms I th- oh my mistake my dry did you say dry there's all kinds of water all over there. yeah yeah come on excellent well my dams were very dry this game <laughs> hey one thing i want to go back to because i think it's we've kind of skipped over the fact that this is not just building dams and stuff. This is an alternate universe game. And I think that is incredibly interesting. I just love games like that. I think they're super cool. And this one's set in like the 1920s. The visuals of this game, I mean, the box cover of this thing just knocks me out. I love the art in this. It just the look of it is so interesting. And I picture, you know, these kind of Tesla coils and these, you know, these giant towers shooting lightning off into space. And I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm charmed by it. Now that said, the physical production, other than the art, I mean, it seems fairly simple. You know, there's basic wooden components that represent your workers. They represent your buildings. And that isn't super exciting, but honestly, for me, the art and the theme more than make up for that. So I'm pretty happy with it. Yeah, Chris, the art and the theme, to touch on that, it all fits nicely, and the theme fits in so well with the mechanics. Tim, you mentioned it. It's 
one of the rare Euro games where the theme makes sense with what's going on. Water is flowing over dams and producing energy. That can't make much more sense than that. So I thought that was great. And then to touch on the production a little bit, it looks like this board is in a few different sections where there's dual layer game board as well, where the pieces slot into these different chunks. So it's kind of like your smartphone ink or your polis board where these individual pieces will fit right into the board so they won't slot around or anything. And it looks like that third level is physically higher than the mid level, which is physically higher than the bottom level. So you have that neat kind of 3D effect just to help you visually see which way the water is going to flow and kind of how things are going to meander downstream. Yeah. So uh, we played on VGA tonight and I thought that that was a great experience, especially for learning to play. It won't let you make incorrect moves and there's a lot of opportunity to make incorrect moves. But I did see that the physical production does have a lot of the dual layer boards. Looks really good in terms of quality. In terms of interesting things happening in the game, to touch on last week's topic, Toy Factor, I felt it was pretty weak. But I don't think that that necessarily detracted from the game. There is already a lot of stuff going on in this game. And even though, to use Tim's terminology, it was unquestionably dry, in my opinion, that's okay sometimes. There's so much other stuff happening here that, unlike Rising Sun, where it was just all, like, every component was just interesting and well, not that this wasn't well designed, but interesting and popped, right? Like, the cards popped, the art popped, the tokens popped. This one, not so much, but I really don't think it was a problem. I do think it was pretty neat that everybody had their own power station meeples and Chris's were like little boobs. So that was, you know, that was cool. Also, uh, <laughs> Chris is shaking his head at me right now. Um, the little excavator and concrete mixer tokens are cool. They're like little mech looking tokens that represent the resources that you're spending on those. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's a above average Euro, like classic Euro style production but below average for today's modern productions of flashy, bright themes and, and production. So it's it's in the middle. I think it's de- I think it's fine from a production perspective. I want to ask the final question to you all. I think it's an important question. Would you request to play this game again? Before answering that, I just want to point out that this is actually one of the games that I had on my list that I really wanted to play. So I was kind of excited to get this one on at least the virtual table. In particular, because Tim had kind of expressed some, you know, discontent with this game, didn't seem particularly interested. So I thought it was, you know, good, good sportsmanship on Tim's part that he was willing to, you know, sit down and play this game when he wasn't otherwise inclined to do so. Uh, so I was glad to, to get this on the table. I have sort of two different answers on the asking to play it again. I absolutely want to play this game again, and I think this game is absolutely great. The one reservation I have about it is the fact that it does feel so aggressive. It's it's pretty rare that I say that. I mean, there's plenty of games we play where you're going into direct, direct combat with people. I mean, I'm attacking you. I'm trying to kill you. And in a way, this actually felt more aggressive than a lot of the direct combat games that we play because at least... If you're attacking me, I get a chance to roll some dice and fight back or draw a card or do whatever. In this game, 
you're just going to get up in my face and there's nothing I can do about it. And again, it, it maybe I don't know what it was about tonight, but this the vibe was a little bit a little bit odd. And I think it had something to do with the aggressiveness of this game. So I'm going to put that aside and say it probably was just first play. You know, maybe once we'd all had a couple games under our belt, it would have felt a little bit different. It would have gone a little bit more, you know, mentally smoothly. I don't know. So I'm going to say yes. But I will say that another game, if it felt as salty as this one, it might actually make me think twice. I don't know, Chris. I had a lot of fun playing tonight. I would absolutely request to play this one again, especially if the group was Chris, Adam, and Steve. We'll see what Tim says here. I suspect he's. Got, <laughs> I suspect he might give a a slight hint of a yes. He'd be willing to play it again, but I don't know. It'll be interesting to see hear his response. There is that. I don't know. You say aggression again. I say interaction. I enjoy that. Things are impactful and consequential. You can't just look down and like, I'm going to move this little meeple over to this spot. And it doesn't even matter what anybody else at the table is doing. Everything here matters. I love that in a game. Absolutely request to play this one again. I think I'll be playing a lot in the future. So I'm going to say unequivocally, I would like to play this game again. And I hope to get the opportunity to play it again. Uh, I mentioned while we were playing that this feels like it will replace Power Grid in my game repertoire. And I think one of the reasons I made that connection is because it has a lot of the same head-to-head interaction. Power Grid, you're just building power plants, right? Not that big of a deal. You build power plants, you use resources, but there's a lot of comparisons there. If you are the first person to build a power plant in a region, the next person has to wait to build there. And even when they do, it's going to cost them more. The types of power plants that you decide to buy in auction use specific resources. The more of those resources your opponents are using, the more expensive it's going to be for you to do it. So even though you can buy whatever kind of power plants you want, the choices you make are directly impacting your opponents and you're making those choices because you know it's going to impact your opponents. And that is part of the puzzle. This is not a solo game. This is a game about figuring out how to work around the fact that your opponents are going to get in your way. They're trying to do the same kind of stuff you're trying to do. There's some space to maneuver, but it is a pacing game, and it's a pacing issue, and that is part of the puzzle here. Chris, I appreciate you calling me a good sport for agreeing to play this game tonight, because I was anything but a good sport tonight as I complained the whole way through the night about how frustrated I was. And I've never been, I think, more frustrated on a first play of a game, and that you know, the things that I did, just you guys in, intentionally, in most cases, I think, were able to block me and stop me. And I didn't know to expect that on a first game. And that was really harsh. It was really frustrating. But the game is fantastic. The game is great. And I can't wait to play it again. I loved I loved this game. I hated this first gameplay of it. I think that with the next game, I could better anticipate what the possibilities are, what the risks are, and things like that. And so I will be requesting to play this game again. I think it's a it's an amazing game. I will probably never request to play this with someone that's never played it again, especially after I have several more plays, because I think if I have several more plays, there's no way this is a good game for the person I'm teaching it to. 
And and that's a challenge. I think that is a flaw of the game. Also, I don't like games where I spend a lot of time building up my thing. Euro games where I spend resources, a tight Euro game where I spend resources, collect things, plan, and then somebody else can get in my way. But that's what this game is, right? And you have to go into it knowing it. Now that I know that, I'm excited to try it and see if I can mess with other people and excited excited to see if I can like do things in a way that I can't be impacted in such a major way by other people. So I'm excited to try it again. I'm excited to play this game again. It was really cool. It reminded me a lot of Gaia Project with the different interconnected pieces, just like the the jerks version of Gaia Project. But the, but it's but it's also really cool in a lot of ways. So I'm I'm excited to play this game. It it's better than I expected it was going to be. When I read the rules on it, that it was going to be a dry mean game. And it is a mean game, but it's a very exciting and interesting set of mechanisms me- mechanisms that I think work really well together. So I'm excited to play this game again, believe it or not. I know you guys heard a lot of swear words from me tonight. I apologize for that, but it, but I'm looking forward to it. I think it's a good game. Surprising. So I think I can change my answer now to an unequivocal yes. I, I, as long as Tim can control himself, I would love to play this game again. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that will wrap up the conversation on Barrage. Let's move into a barrage-themed cocktail and some games we've had on our table right after this. All right, welcome back. So, Chris, what do you have for us tonight? Well, I love alternate history games. I already mentioned that. And I love the early 20th century. And for some reason, it seems like there's all these games that are clumped around alternate history in the early 20th century, like around the World War I period. I mean, Barrage is one. Scythe is another one, another one of my all-time favorite games. You know, that, and that's great for me. I think that's terrific, because I think that's two great things that go great together. So not only is that a cool period, but it's also a really fun time period to play around with for this week's cocktail. And this one is indeed a true, straight-up classic. It's the Sidecar. It's one of those drinks that everybody's heard of, but I'm actually surprised sometimes at how many people have never actually tried this awesome drink. So this is your chance, and it is a delicious one, so I hope you guys will all take, uh, take an opportunity to give this one a shot. So, back to the story. Here we are, getting the Wayback Machine with me. It's World War I. It's Paris, and there's a dashing young army captain who frequents his favorite watering hole and his drink of choice, a mixture of brandy or cognac, lemon juice, and triple sec. The clever bartender names this drink the sidecar. Why? Because that was the captain's transportation of choice, of course. I mean, after all, how else are you going to roll, right? This creates quite a picture, doesn't it? So this is a time when there was a lot going on in the cocktail world. And frankly, there are also a lot of tall tales about how these drinks were created and by who they were created. The point being that nobody actually knows for sure whether this story is true or not. But it sure does feel good when you're sipping a sidecar during a stressful game of barrage. So here's what you're going to need. One and a half ounces of cognac. I'm not fussy. In my opinion, any decent brandy will do. Three quarters of an ounce of orange liqueur. Again, not fussy. Cointreau is one of the classics, and it's one of the most common ones to use, but feel free to use triple sec, curacao, Grand Meunier, whatever you got. And three quarters of an ounce of lemon juice. Now, normally, I skip the garnish, 
but this is one of those really rare instances where I think the garnish actually helps make the drink. So before you make the cocktail, wipe a little bit of lemon juice along the rim of the cocktail glass, preferably a coupe glass, and then you dip that in sugar. This should give you a sugar rim really similar to the salt that you'd have on a margarita glass. Then you're gonna mix the ingredients, shake them all with ice, and strain the mixture into your sugar-rimmed glass. And voila, it's the sidecar. So my guess is after tasting this, those drops of water in Barrage won't be the only liquids on your mind. I had never had a sidecar before, so I was one of those folks that had never tried one. And this was a delicious drink, and it actually did improve my experience with Barrage tonight, and I really needed that. So thank you, Chris. Well, I'm just going to say... I don't know if I've had a sidecar, but Chris's description makes me want to have several sidecars. It just sounds amazing. In Paris during World War I. Pretty much anything makes me want to have several sidecars. <laughs> All right, Chris, what's been on your table this week? So I was recently on a family vacation with my wife's, my wife's sister and husband and three teenage girls. So we had a bunch of people around the table and this is not normally a crew that I think of as being gamers, but it just so happens that uh, my college-age niece-in-law is a big fan of a game called Dutch Blitz. So Dutch Blitz is about as old school as you're going to get in board gaming. It's from 1960, and it was designed by Werner Ernst George Mueller and published by the Dutch Blitz Games Company. And... The, the 1960s is on full display here. So let me just give you a quick dramatic reading from the back of the box. Dutch Blitz, a wonderful goot game. Dutch Blitz is such a wonderful goot fun for young folks in old vans too. Why you should see the vans who plays, they gets in such a stew. I mean, if that doesn't tell you all you need to know, then I don't know what does. So, seriously, this game was actually a lot of fun. Essentially what it is, is it's four decks of cards, five if you get the five-player expansion, and they're cards numbered one to ten, and they're in different colors. And what you're doing is, it's, it's an unusual uh, real-time card game where they, you start by putting out cards starting with one. So if you have a one in your hand, you're throwing down a one, and then others who have a card of that same color in the next number up, say a two, if I throw down a green one and Tim's got a green two, he can throw that down. And so we're going to keep going around the table. Actually, not even going around the table. It's just going to be everybody around the table at the same time throwing down cards in piles as they start to build. And then once you finish off a pile, you flip it over, you take it, you get points for it. And ultimately, all you're trying to do is get down to no cards in your reserve. And once you do... You yell blitz, and then you win that round, and you get points for however many stacks you've you've claimed from the center. And we must have played this game every night for like at least an hour. Everybody was getting into this game. Super fun is a little card party game, easy to play, easy to understand, and goofy is all get out. I mean, it's got these little little Dutch kids on there, and you get to read the back of the box, which you know is half the fun. So uh, a fun game, and I actually think I'll be picking up a copy of this myself, so I'll have it for the next family get-together as well. And the next BGHT con. Chris, I've never heard of this game. I'm looking at it here. It looks like a deck full of joy. Sounds like a deck full of joy, nightfuls of joy. Did you ever play that game Speed? 
when you were a kid, it's played with a traditional deck of cards, and I've only played it just a two-player game. It's similar. You have a card that's face up, and you're trying to go either up or down, and you're trying to put all these cards out and just get rid of all the hands, all the cards in your hand before the other person, and that's how you win. Is it similar to that? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I mean, I haven't played the game you're talking about, but it does sound very similar. In fact, I kind of wonder if maybe it's just a version of Dutch Blitz or Dutch Blitz is a version of Speed that just uses a special deck. I mean, really, you could play Dutch Blitz by taking four decks of cards, pulling out all, or actually one deck of cards, pulling out all the, you know, one through ten or the ace through ten. And then instead of having colored cards, you just have the four different suits. So you could do the same thing for cheaper, I guess. But you wouldn't have the cool box. I think they missed out on a great opportunity to call that movie with Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock chasing after Dennis Hopper, Dutch Blitz. I think that would have been, that would have been <laughs> oh my perfect. God. That's, uh, and you're coming out with some classics on these last couple episodes, Tim. I'm going to have to start writing these down. These are great. Anyway, uh, the game that's been, I've had a few games on my table, which is a rarity for me, but the game I would like to talk about is called Age of Galaxy. I mentioned this on one of the previous episodes way back when. It uh, is a Kickstarter game and it funded in November and here it is only a few months later in August and it arrived at my door and I was like shocked. I remember I mentioned it and you guys kind of brushed it off. Oh yeah, let me know how that goes. Sounds like a joke. And I bought it as kind of a whim, another space game. Here it goes Adam buying some space game, hoping to find a little 4X in a tiny little box. Well, you know what guys? That's exactly what this thing is. It is absolutely freaking delightful. I would say it's a pocket version of the game, but it's the only version of this game. It's this tiny box, maybe four inches by six inches, if that. And it has so much depth in there, so many combos, so many cards, so much variability, and a lot of interesting decisions. And I'm, I mean it like legitimately tons of thinkiness going on in this game. Who's this designed by? Let me get that going here. The designer is Jeffrey CCH, and the publisher is Ice Makes. There's an artist listed here. I want to mention him, Samuel Horwitz, because the art, I think, is outstanding, and it brings me in. While we're talking about the art, I'll talk about the cards. There's all these different cards, i.e. factions is what they're called in this game, and they're all unique, different species on each one, and they all do some things below that some actions and below that there's a little strip of terrain that kind of represents the planet they're from that's on each card there's a character and a little strip of terrain that's just enough to bring me into this little game so what are you doing there's a bunch of resources well not a bunch there's a few resources no not even a few there's two resources there's ships and there's money and that's all you need so in kind of a guy project-esque situation on your player board there's how much you're going to produce and then there's how much you actually have. And then the other resource in this game is your ships, your cruisers. What you're trying to do, you're trying to use those cruisers to protect your planets that you've already colonized or to conquer available planets that aren't protected. There's some interesting mechanics. You can overextend yourself and leave yourself susceptible to other players that have more ships and they can swipe one of your planets from you and kind of a mean move But what got you in that situation was yourself for not protecting your planet. So that right there is an interesting choice that happens at the end of every round. Let me back up and start at the beginning of every round because why would you start at the end of every round when games start at the beginning? Anyway, you get these seven different cards 
seven different factions that get dealt out to you. You're looking at these things. How are they going to combo up? Throughout the course of the game, you get to decide if you're going to use one of these cards as your main factions, your main allies, and that gives you a bunch of different actions right off the bat, a bunch of different combinations that'll help you explode your engine right there. You can also, once per turn, you can use one of these cards just to discard it for a colonization to help you colonize the planets out there or to discard it for a little resource right away that you'll get. Also, you can use one of these cards as your overarching ideal. So there's going to be these ideals, too, that are in the game. Right? So already you're like, Adam, you're talking about way too much stuff. How can you have all these decisions in this little tiny box? It's amazing, guys. Anyway, the gameplay is fun. It's simple. It's streamlined. On your player boards, there's these three little tech tracks. And you can work yourself up these. And once you get to the, the second level to the top, there's only three steps on each you can branch over. So if you're in the middle tech track, you can go straight up or to the right. So that opens up those options. If you're on the left side or right side, you can go up or just to the left if you're on the right side, up to the, that doesn't make any sense, but take a look at it. It'll make sense when you see what I'm talking about. You're flipping over a chunk of the galaxy each time, a la something like Black Angel, I believe. You know, it's kind of like the exploration action in, for instance, Eclipse. You're also adding these little exploration tokens, very similar to Eclipse as well. Super powerful. If you're able to get this exploration action, you're going to flip one of these things over and get yourself a huge chunk of resources. I lied about there only being two resources. There's actually like five or something. Don't even listen to what I'm saying a few seconds ago. Listen to what I'm saying right now. I don't know, guys. This game is fantastic. There's so much punch in such a little box. I was so pleasantly surprised by this thing. There's a solo mode I haven't really investigated yet. I've heard it's just like a point target, try to get here, try to get there. I haven't investigated, so I can't really speak to that. But I played it two-handed. I had so much fun going through this game, seeing all these combinations explode in front of my face. And it plays quickly. It plays in like 45 to 60 minutes. I can't say enough about how pleasantly surprised I was by this game. That's Age of Galaxy. What questions do you have for me after that? incoherent ramble about this game so adam i do remember you mentioning this one a while back and i remember looking at it and my immediate reaction was this is a big box full of one by one inch cardboard pieces and i kind of rolled my eyes and laughed respond to that that's exactly the response that i remember and i was not expecting much when i took this thing out of the box but you know, as I looked at these cards, I was like, all right, the art's pretty cool here. Let's see what the gameplay is like. And I started to get into it. You know, oh, wait, I can do this. Holy cow. It's the first round of the game and I'm already doing all this stuff. It seriously is an amazing game. There's another mechanic in here where you have these actions that are associated with these events. And once these event cards fill up, you flip them. Whoever's got the majority there gets to exercise this cool little bonus. So that kind of pushes the game forward in another way. There's just an interesting novel set of mechanisms here that I don't, you guys have this, I can't wait to bring this thing to a little long con here in a month and show this one to you guys because it's so unique. It's just neat. You're going to love it, Chris. I got two important questions for you, Adam. Number one, you get seven cards at the beginning of the game. That's cool. It sounds like multi-use cards. You get to pick a couple for your factions or something like that. Do the cards get drafted? Or are they just dealt out? Yeah, there's a drafting variant. It says, hey, at first, when you're first learning the game, just here's your seven cards. And you can discard three right off the bat if you want to try to work towards something else. 
then once you play the game a few more times, there's a drafting variant. Yep, you nailed it, Tim. That's going to make the decision process a lot more interesting there too, I think. I haven't looked too much into that. I don't know quite how that works. But any kind of drafting variant, a la Terraforming Mars, where you're going to be able to kind of stack your deck in your favor and it exploits some combos that might not be there randomly dealt out, I think that's fantastic. So yeah, an initial game, just deal them out, see how it goes, get the, familiar with the mechanics. But as the game goes on, as you play it more and more, yeah, try this. I'm, I'm excited to look into that drafting variant and see what opportunities that provides. Okay, second question. So there's a lot to be said about a game that comes in a small box. If there's a lot of game in that box, that's cool. But does this replace something, or would you pick this over something like Eclipse? You know, you've got three hours, you've got a couple hours, and you're like, hey, one of these two games I'm going to play, which one Which one is it going to be? I don't know what, if it, I think it feels a niche, a niche. It's about an hour-long game. I'm on the road a lot. It fits inside of a backpack, easily inside of a suitcase. It's just one little box that has all this stuff. You can take it on the road over there, wherever you want to go. So it doesn't, I don't know if it replaces anything. I think it fills its own thing about an hour long semi 4X game with, yeah, these multi-use cards that are just fantastic and all these combos you're going to be able to exploit. I don't know anything quite like it, Tim. Imperium the Contention was also supposed to be a shorter streamlined 4X game. You know, does this kind of compete with that or is it, does it feel very different? No, I don't think it compares. That's, you have this big old decks, these kind of... You can do a little deck construction with that if you want to, but you have these preset factions. It plays well at four, five, six players, a simultaneous action drop of a card. You're gonna get all your ships out there. There's actually more combat that's happening with that. Here, the combat is just another kind of an auction that you're gonna do as you're managing your cruisers and you're looking at everybody else's cruiser. How many do they have? How many do I have? And that's kind of the interaction here. In that game, you do have these actual, you know, more direct combat where this ship's going to attack this ship and take it out who's going first so it's different the interaction is different and that's as much as i can speak to that i think i am answering your question but maybe not well you got me intrigued i'm, I'm excited to try this sounds fun cool. i gotta say this is so far the game that i am most interested in playing at our next con that i have not played before you know I, i'm looking looking forward to a lot of games that we've played once or twice that I want to play again, but this is the one that I haven't played that I'm most intrigued by. I'm excited to show you guys. I, now that I've hyped it up a bunch, I'm sure it's going to fall flat and you guys will be like, Adam, another pooper of a game you, you're showing me. But I hope not. I hope uh, I hope you guys like it. It is going to be tiny. We're going to have to be like all huddling in, looking at this little central thing because you know it all fits in this box. The cards are like this. The player boards are like this. It's all tiny, so hopefully nobody sneezes and shoots this thing all over the room. But I'm, I think it'll be a fun time. Speaking of a poopers of games that you've introduced us to, Steve, what what's been on your table this week? Here we go, Tim. Okay, well, with that lead in, I think that's uh, that's a little bit. I can't even. I don't even. So. <laughs> one man's opinion. One man's yeah, opinion. Right. That's a that's a leading question. But I will talk about Bloodstones. Uh, we got the chance to play this, all four of us last week or so this is a martin wallace production through and through he is the designer he is the producer there are some artists uh, atticus mcnaughton and leah walton are the artists for this game interesting game a lot of asymmetry not as much as maybe cthulhu wars definitely more asymmetry than barrage 
unfortunately, that is one of the mechanical problems with Bloodstones. The combination of the map layout with the asymmetry of the unit powers uh, makes this game pretty much a dice roll. It's sort of small world meets, I don't know. It's an area control game with lots of various units that only are effective in certain terrain types. And it's a very interesting first play, but I'm pretty sure that at the end of that play, and this is sort of a mini hot take here, so I'm going to let you guys chime in, but I'm pretty sure we all said that we would not choose to play that game again. Not because it was a terrible game, but just because it was not a great game. Well, I think Steve's memory is really short because Steve was talking by the end of the game that he wanted to back this on GameFound, but ultimately decided that he didn't think he'd get played enough. So I thought you enjoyed it quite a bit, Steve. Now, I want to mention that you said that the you know asymmetry in the layout kind of created a crapshoot as to how you could do in this, but I think you're forgetting how decisively I won with my disadvantage in the game. I think it's clearly a strategic <laughs> focused game. Um, that said, I didn't have a lot of fun playing Bloodstones. It had good promise for me. I like Martin Wallace's designs a lot. I think they're usually very interesting. And I think this was the dullest of his designs that I've had a chance to play. It felt a lot like playing Risk, both in the monotony of the combat and the back and forth taking territories, as well as the really frustrating surprises of going into a combat with an advantage and then losing based on just some bad luck. So those two parts reminded me of Risk. It did remind me of Small World a little bit in the way that you're kind of putting out characters and territories based on the challenge of the territory and the strength of the units and stuff like that. I think I like Small World more. It's a more fun, lighthearted and, and fun version of a similar type of game. This was not a very fun play for me, so I would not choose to play it again. I didn't hate it but it wasn't far off from hate. It was maybe like a, a strong dislike. What about you, Adam? What do you think of Bloodstones? Yeah, I thought there were some interesting mechanics here that I wanted to investigate. I thought the the map looked gorgeous. It's kind of these hand-painted cloth maps with a heavy border. I thought they looked wonderful. And I like the pieces here, too. They're kind of like dominoes with these little pips on one side and little classic-looking, I don't know, little sketches or etches out of these dominoes of the different characters that you were your factions and i thought the gameplay had some interesting moments tim we had that one pivotal battle i think we tied but then you won on your little tiebreaker guy that was in there and boom and then that opened the floodgates you just swept through my entire army and got points after points after points after points doing that so yeah ultimately it it left me a little unsatisfied unfulfilled there's again i didn't hate the game i think there's other games that i'd rather play instead of this one it did have that very much of a risk kind of feel i like how you're using these dominoes and once you've exhausted your supply that's when you score over the course of the each round you're putting villages out and then however many villages out that's how many points you get and then you kind of want to try to conquer other people's villages so they aren't unable to score and then for however many villages you capture you get that many points at the end of the game so some things that seem pretty interesting and i'm sure there's some nuance there that we didn't bump into in our one play that we had but yeah that was bloodstones i'm glad we played it but i'm also not sad that i'm not back in it 
Yeah, two more things I want to mention about it is one of the things that I think was a little frustrating is that there's a lot of downtime because when one player takes their turn, they basically play out their whole hand of dominoes, which are these like basically multi-use cards, but dominoes. And so they get they have a whole bunch of decisions to make. It's a long wait. And then if you know two people are in a combat, that the third person is just kind of sitting there waiting as well. And then the back and forth with the combat was really minuscule. Like you would go into a combat and if you lost you'd lose one of your characters in there and your other ones would have to be pushed back to other regions. And then on the next turn, if they decide to come back into combat with you, you, they go in, you lose one character and get pushed back a little bit. So, you know, it's just this very minor, the game felt slight. It felt like for this big production, it's a fairly expensive game on GameFund right now. Um, I just didn't feel like it, it offered enough that was different or unique from many other games and, and uh, you know, just a, a little slow. So, that was my thoughts. There was a lot of stuff that we did experience in that game that probably could have benefited from some additional exploration. For one thing, you mentioned the dominoes, right? That factor of the card hand mechanic is unique, right? We don't see a lot of uh, repurposed domino shapes in games. That was interesting. You don't play them really like dominoes, but they did have some similarities. There was definitely some maneuvering that we didn't get a chance to take advantage of, um, like blocking retreats. We never really got a chance to explore that aspect of the game. I don't think we really took advantage of the ships Right, you can put ships in the water regions, and that allows your uh, infantry and cavalry to move across significant distances for either potential attacks, retreats, or uh, blocking of retreats. There are some interesting factors of the asymmetry, right? Like, I got to play the dragons, I love the mythology of dragons. So I was super happy to get to play that clan, and the dragons are super powerful. All of the factions have distinct, unique abilities. So there's a lot going on there. I would say, like, if we're going to compare this to Risk, this is many, many levels better than Risk. But at the end of the day, compared to Barrage that we played tonight, even though that was a much less friction based game barrage was a lot more interesting so i think there was a lot going on there just at the end of the day it wasn't interesting enough what does it say about barrage that that war game we played was less friction based than barrage <laughs> for one i'm going to talk about that combat one more time so it brings in a couple of things you were talking about steve the so tim and i had this combat it was pretty pivotal i wanted to try to do this surround tim's entire army that way if i won the combat all of his players are wiped off the board because he has nowhere to retreat to. So that seemed kind of neat to me. So I did that at the expense of having majority of characters in that battle. I think we had the same number of characters in that battle. What does that mean? It means the attacker gets to draw three attack dominoes and the defender gets to draw three attack dominoes. So instead of four, if I had a majority of characters, I would have gotten to draw four. You only play three, but having that fourth domino gets you more options. And then with those dominoes, you can replace one of those, so if you got like a level two domino from an attacker, you could replace that with one of your dominoes from your hand that had like four or five pips, add your strength in combat, and boom, then whoever has the most combat points wins the combat. So that's kind of how that went down. Yep, I did this little gambit, lost the combat, 
And that's when the floodgates were open and Tim just crushed me. So yeah, if that sounds interesting to you, that kind of gameplay, those kind of mechanics, this might be for you. I, I thought the player boards were clean. Everything, all the information is right there on the player boards, easy to decipher. It's well laid out. I mean, so I think this game is for people who like that, I don't know, sort of advanced risk, asymmetric factions, sort of classic board game. It felt very much like a classic vintage style board game. So if you're looking for that, this game might be for you. All right. Well, let me talk about a game that I've had on my table recently, which is a vintage classic board game. This is from Stefan Feld. I think it's from like 2010, 2011. This is Notre Dame. This is my number two Feld game at this point, right after Castle Burgundy. Um, it's, a, it's a lighter game. You're basically running an arrondissement in Paris. So your board is laid out where you've got the Notre Dame chapel right in the middle of the board. And each player has a little region around that they're trying to, to uh, run the most successfully. This is a drafting game. So each of these regions has about uh, six different spaces in the board that represent different actions you can take. You can you know take an action to get coins. You can take action to get more action markers to put on the board, etc. cetera. Um, and then you can also take an action to put a space into Notre Dame, which is like this area control thing. Whoever has the most there at the end of the round gets some points. But it's a drafting game. Everybody starts with the same eight cards in their deck that represent one of these actions that you can take. At the beginning of each turn, you draw three of those, I think like nine cards, but you draw three of those cards and then you're going to pick one, pass the other two, take you know two from the next person. You're basically going to draft three cards each round and then you're going to play two of those cards. And those cards are really simple. You know, you play one down and you put an action marker into one of these region in your Arendissement. And then if you play a second card that does the same action in that Arendissement, then you double the actions. Like if the first one gives you one coin, second one would give you two coins, the third one would give you three coins, etc. So you're going to build up these little action markers in your city and they're going to get stronger and stronger. The problem is you only start with four action markers. So one of the actions you can take is to get more action markers. And so it's a, it's a kind of a tight little economy. Beyond that, you got rats. At the beginning of each round, you place up these three assistant cards. They're going to be available for you to purchase at the end of the round that are going to give you some benefit. But at the bottom of them, these little rat icons, and you only have nine rat spaces in your city. If you get more than nine rat spaces, you start losing points, start losing action markers. So you have to control the rats, and some of the actions you can take in your city are to get rid of rats or to make the, the rat attacks a little bit weaker. Uh, so it's something you got to watch for. You got to plan for it. This is a really fun game. And I've played, I think, half a dozen times over the last two weeks since I picked this game up with Jen and Danielle. The three of us have been playing a lot of this. Great at three players. I think it's great at four players. Super fun game. You can knock it out in about 40, 45 minutes. And it's a great little experience. It's ugly as all get out. This is a classic Ravensburger, Steffenfeld game, but really, really fun gameplay set in a city that I love. I love Notre Dame. If you want a lighter Steffenfeld game, this is the, the game that I would definitely recommend. I'm just going to say that sounds like it hits a lot of your <laughs> like points that you love about games, right? The, the card drafting, the action multipliers. I mean, it just sounds basically perfect for you for a lightweight game. And don't forget the rats. And the rats. I mean, you can never have too many rats. Yeah, Tim loves rats. Everyone knows that. <laughs> no, serious question for you guys, though. I this, you know, it's a short description, but you know, we're going to be getting together in a few weeks. Does this have any interest at all to you, or would you much rather be playing something else rather than this fun little light drafting game? 
those types of games, when you describe them, they never sound interesting to me. <laughs> but then sometimes I play them, and they are interesting to me. So I, uh, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is then. I, I think I'm gonna bring it. Um, I think I'm gonna bring it, and then if it's like we've got like half an hour, forty five minutes before we want to go get something to eat, I think we'll throw this down. I think you guys will actually have a really great time with it. I think this is a great game. I think you guys will enjoy it. It just it doesn't sound exciting, but I think it's a it's a fun one. Tim, I went to a game night one time and ended up playing Magnificent or Factory, Fantastic Factories or something. And over at the other table, everybody was laughing and John and having a grand old time. And I was like, I want to be playing that game because this game is not that fun. And I looked over and everyone's talking about rats this and rats that. And it was Notre Dame. It sounded so much fun. I would love to get this one a try. I've been wanting to play it ever since that day. So it's stuck in my head. I'd love to try this one. All right, cool. Uh, that, that settles it. It doesn't sound super unique, but I love trying new games. And what better new game to try than one that only takes 45 minutes? Exactly right. <laughs> Even if you hate it. <laughs> and you love it. So you love it. So that's a great recommendation. I, I hope you do bring it. and I hope we get a chance to play it. If you love it, we'll love it. <laughs> that same goes for me to you, Chris. <laughs> all right well i think that will wrap up this episode of board game hot takes i hope you enjoyed the show if you did please rate and review us on apple Podcasts. we'd love to get your feedback we'd also love for you to interact with us on the various social media platforms that we hang out at primarily twitter at bg underscore hot takes but you can also find us on facebook at board game hot takes or on instagram at bg underscore hot takes until next week take care everybody good night all bye bye have a good week